Hey there, this is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? So originally we were planning to do a different session as we advertised at the end of last year, but then with everything that happened recently, the upsurge of protest and riots and demonstrations against the government in Iran, we decided that we would pivot towards doing a brief session on Iran for this first Alpha Banga Banga podcast of 2018. And we've got a guest on to join us with the usual crew, Arash Azizi, who's very kindly um, agreed to join us and to tell us a bit about what's happening in Iran. Arash is a writer and a doctoral student in history. He also used to, he writes currently for IranWire.com and also uh, worked for the BBC in the past and was a TV broadcaster for the Iranian press. So nice to have you with us, Arash. Welcome to Alpha Banga Banga. Uh, thanks, Flip. It's great to be with you guys. And otherwise, along with Rash and myself, it's also Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hello. And say hi, George. Hey. And we're going to be talking about Iran. So, um, very basic. I mean, just to kind of put everybody in the picture and to help us orient ourselves to what's going on. So, could you tell us, Rash, what sparked the new series of protests? Well, they actually, the spark might come up as a surprise to many, but the spark was actually um, some of the hardline supporters of the regime wanted to spark up some protests over economic issues against the elected president, Hassan Rouhani, who is more of a moderate and, uh, uh, you know, what you can call most of a pro-reform figure that is sort of deeply mistrusted and opposed by the hardline establishment of the regime. It was, in fact, the hardline establishment that tried to get some economic protest going on in the city of Mashhad, which is Iran's second biggest city and, and a holy city. Um, but it quickly got out of hand. And uh, you had, in more than a week, you had protests in more than 70 cities in more than 16 out of 31 provinces of Iran. And what I can say, uh, yeah, basically the most widespread protests uh, since 1979. It's really interesting. So you're saying that it's kind of basically internal divisions within the state itself have provided the opening then for the public protests exactly well yeah you know it, it happens often um, that in the initial spark you know is almost accidental right we see this in a lot of uh, movements and and in, this was also the case it was sort of an the accidental case was that that's how that's, that's where the spark came from but they quickly went to be against the regime as you can see by the slogans like death to dictator slogans against supreme leader ayatollah khamenei um and many others and they lacked a political leadership um in, in sort of a very acute way. I mean, there's a lot of movements that you can say there's not a clear political leadership. But in this case, there really wasn't a particular political leadership. So they, you know, they became a very sort of what you can call a movement of people angry at the status quo as a whole. And the methods used also were, you know, there was a lot of attacking seminaries, attacking religious buildings, attacking, you know, attacking the first symbol of authority you can find. And we're talking in very small cities, um, you know, not the main cities with the tradition of political organizing. We're talking about cities. In fact, 
some Iranians joked that this was a geographic class uh, to to try to follow the protest because you know you heard all the cities that you've never heard about before, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, as of as of yet, it's been. It seems to, at least from the reporting that I've read, it seems to be mainly concentrated in smaller cities and in the provinces rather than Tehran. Is that right? That's that's right, exactly, and that's and that's a very important fact because you know one of the criticisms of the two thousand nine movement was that you know it didn't spread to a lot of smaller cities. In fact, people say the only parallel you can find with the protests that you had last week in their geographical breadth was uh, was the 1979 revolution. You see, for example, in the 1990s, you also had a lot of protests in Iran over economic issues. They were similarly responses to neoliberal economic measures of a reform-minded government, the government of President Rafsanjani back then, who's sort of a mentor to the current president. Um, but, you know, they were... You know, there were skirmishes in one or two city. They would last a few days, and they would really be concentrated on economic issues. Here, you had, you know, you had a movement that really showed so much anger and revulsion by the ordinary downtrodden people at the entire status quo. And you know, um, you know, a lot of protests and movements in Iran before were focused on supporting a wing of the regime, you know, part of the regime politics. Iran does have a really sort of lively official politics. Um, and the protests usually sort of intersected with those. But here we had people who didn't care much about this official politics and just showed an anger against the entire status quo. So does this geographical division um, actually tell us anything about sort of the, the class basis of the of the protests or, or not? I mean, how much can we sort of surmise from the fact that it's been outside of, of the capital? It definitely has a, a very large class dimension to it, I think. Um, and obviously, you know, when it comes to uh, class analysis of, of movements like this one has to be careful. The empirical evidence is not very clear. Now we're talking about especially like, you know, I'm talking to you um, a mere, what, 10 or 12 days after the protest has started. Um, the empirical sort of data is not very clear. Um then there's, and then there's the question of, you know, what do we mean by class analysis? But what I can tell you is this, that while the 2009 movement clearly had a more middle class and politically educated leadership, you know, i.e. because it came uh, from electoral campaigns, you know, those who led the 2009 movement were those who had been active in electoral campaigns um, that had been, you know, that had been cheated out of victory in 2009. This time, we see no such leadership and no such participation. So it definitely was more working class. And I suppose, um, you know, I'm not on my vulgar Marxist hat today, but uh, <laughs> you, uh, you could see that. I suppose you can also say that, in fact, some what classical Marxists would call Dumpen Proletaria, in fact, did have a role at parts from the kind of, definitely, I would say, politically un- uneducated and untutored sort of masses definitely had a bigger role in these protests, mm-hmm. um, you know, based on the evidence that I can see from the films and photos uh, published and, you know, from the observations of people. So this, so just to make it perhaps a bit concrete for our listeners. So when you talk about smaller cities and provinces, um, could you maybe give us like what the analogs might be, say in the US or in the UK, perhaps, um, any kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, other country which you might be familiar with to give people a sense of what it means for yeah. that breadth of protest in cities and towns of that size? 
well, you know, so the, you know, the Tehran, our capital would be like New York or London, the largest city. So, and the protests weren't there. There were some protests there, especially in front of the Tehran University. But, you know, they were mostly solidarity with the protests. You know, like the yeah. real pr- protests were happening somewhere else. Um, and many students were, were arrested. And I hope we can get to talk about that as well at some point. Um, and But, you know, the small cities, we're talking, you know, small cities in places like Texas or Arizona or, you know, Tombridge Wells in England, I guess. You know, we're talking <laughs> about cities that are, never, I mean, Tom, you know. <laughs> An Iranian idea of what Tumbridge Wells is might not be very accurate. So <laughs> not sure, but, but you know, to give you to give you a specific examples, we're talking about cities that have only you know a hundred thousand uh, people living there, or two hundred thousand, or even less than a hundred thousand in the south uh, western province of Khuzestan, in the central uh, province of Luristan, and and sort of in neighboring provinces of of central Iran. Um, and some, in fact, in the northwestern Iran, uh, close to the Turkish border. So, uh, you know, we're talking we're talking places that are the unemployment is much higher there. There's much more economic deprivation. They're economically marginalized places. Yeah. Some yeah. have said, you know, some have said that oh, these are also places that there are the sort of ethnic minorities. But I find that to be inaccurate and based on bad readings of maps and all that. Basically, there's no. There's no evidence that shows uh, ethnic minorities had a, a specific role in this protest, or you know, or or they were concentrated in those kind of areas. So you've already mentioned the um, comparisons, and it's very interesting to hear you make comparisons both with 1979 and with the um, so-called Green Movement from 2008-2009. So could you tell us a little bit more about what the what are the salient points of difference with the green movement? Um, you've mentioned a few already. Are there any others that you would also want to draw out? Well, um, you know, one of the most important ones is that again. I mean, I emphasize again: there is no, there is no political leadership in the way that it was in two thousand and nine. There is no political point of reference. Well, as a result, the demands, the demand of two thousand nine, it started being very clear: reinstate the president, you know, who you cheated out of victory. The demands here or against the regime as a whole, but as a result, less sort of immediately political. Um, we talked about the different composition. But also it's important to remember that 2007-2018, I guess, movement comes after 2009. And this this is yeah. very important. I.e., A lot of people have the fresh memory of 2009, of 1999, of the entire almost four decades of existence of Islamic Republic. And there is a bit of a desperation, basically. People seem to think that little has changed for for the average Iranian and so it gave, gives a special sense of um, desperation and it's important to remember something now you know I'm a Marxist and I obviously oppose the t- tyranny of this regime but I also engage the official politics in fact I voted for President Rouhani myself in the last uh, presidential elections um, you know, which might be confusing to some because, you know, how can you sort of, de- you know, denounce this regime but also take part in electoral politics? And this is more confusing by the fact that, you know, the dilemma that you also see in some other countries like Tanzania, like some other countries, is that the reformist faction of the Iranian official politics, in fact, has right-wing economics, um, but in the most part, not all of them. Whereas the language of economic justice is usually used by the hardline establishment and it's, you know, it's different factions. The reformists, in fact, have neoliberal economics and they want Iran to be somewhere like South Korea or Taiwan 
both politically, i.e. more open and democratic, but, but also economically. So this leads people into a <clears throat> especially difficult uh, position that, um, you know, they looked at, so the hardline establishment oppresses them in different ways, it's corrupt, and, you know, many other features like this, but as the reformist faction also doesn't in fact have an economics that cares for them. And I'm talking about, you know, they kind of openly say it all the time. You know, they say things like, oh, we've done enough of loving the poor. We need to be more advanced economically, which is read as being, stop talking about the poor and the oppressed, like the old and tired language of the 1979 revolution. So this, you know, the failure to sum up the failure of the reformists to actually uh, recruit the working masses and work with the working classes of Iran and recruit them to their uh, to their ranks has especially exacerbated this kind of desperation that they have of being left out politically. So, so I mean, I, I, given, interesting. I think we I think we've all got got a question. But I haven't asked one yet. So can yeah, I just George, you go, you go first. Also, it's, also, it's a fairly short one. So, just a one of clarification because do, do, do the current protests have any have have they de- um, kind of developed to the stage of concrete, specific, specific demands yet? Well, you know, there there were people at some point who, of course, the students came up with the slogans. You know, they they were sort of clearly socialist slogans like um, "labor, bread, freedom." Because in the beginning there were some protests, there were some slogans shouted in favor of the fallen monarchy. You know, the monarchy that was overthrown in the nineteen seventy nine revolution. Then, as a reaction, you also had some. The slogans that say we don't want a leader or the king, um, you know, so they were sort of anti-monarchist <laughs> slogans like that. There were some slogans against, um, there were some reported some slogans even against some of the reformist leaders, even those who've been uh, who've been in jail or, or in house arrest. But um, I would say that specific demands that become widespread and widely seen as to represent the whole movement, the only ones are the ones that are against the entire regime. They want the overthrow of the regime, death to dictator, and you have to remember, death to dictator in Iran is important because it's a, it sort of reminds people of death to Shah, which was a big slogan of the 1979 revolution, and that revolutionary memory is very alive in Iran. So to speak of another revolution, you know, it's sort of very relevant. I mean, given the state of play as you described it within the Iranian establishment between the hardliners and the reformists, I mean, to what extent is there a risk that? you know, crackdowns on protesters would actually end up strengthening the hardliners um, or that the, the use of economic grievance might be able to be captured by by the hardliners? Well, you know, that the danger is always there. In fact, there is a legitimate comparison to make between the Iranian protest and, you know, what the term sort of populism that is used haphazardly to talk about different phenomena in the um, Western countries or some other countries, there is you know there is sort of a populist dimension where people. You know, this is why you would have monarchist uh, slogans because pe- people remember the Pahlavi, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, as sort of an example of a strong man who had good governance and no tolerance for corruption. That's the that's the myth, anyways. Um, so you know there the, the, there is that danger, and also there is the danger of you know the official politics uh, is going on. It has its own challenges um you know as i said many of us supported support president rohani when he challenges the uh, supreme leader when he challenges him in, in like um, over political lights over civil liberties um this is this protest absolutely do have a sort of they do disrupt that and they come with their own challenges but really the the good news is that the protests have 
done two things. First, reminded the hardline establishment that they have a good reason to be afraid that, you know, they haven't, in fact, suppressed the society. They're sure that this content does, in fact, exist even in the smallest cities, that it's not, you know, something that, you know, a lot of people around 2009 would say that this content is only among the youth in the or in the big cities, people in the provinces all love the regime. We know that's not true. But they've also sort of put a real challenge in front of the reformist and reformist faction that if they really want to win the people, they need to have a more left-wing economical vision. They need to discard this sort of almost quixotic neoliberalism that they have. I mean, you know, people in Iran publish Milton Friedman as, you know, as sort of the last word of the economics in a way that you really don't have in the West anymore. Yeah. You have more sophisticated visions, even by the conservative party. So it really challenges the reformists to come up with poli- economic policies that can attract the working classes of Iran, which are the majority of the population. So the government, I mean, you've mentioned kind of the political position now between the protesters and the government. Um it seems, I mean, at least from what I've gathered, that the government crackdown seems to be working in terms of the arrests. They seem to have dispersed some of the most kind of um, forceful aspects of the protests. So I was wondering what, how you read the situation and what we might expect next in this confrontation and the standoff. Well, frankly, the you know, it was always um, clear to me that it's quite likely that this round of protests will die down at some point. Um, you know, the Iranian regime is pretty strong in, you know, in many ways. It has a very serious social foundation. At least a good 10-15% of society seriously defended. It has, you know, it has few le- layers of armed men, ideologically trained, precisely to defend the regime. It's not going to go away with, with a round of protests. So uh, I think it's not a surprise that they've died down after a while. As to, you know, sort of predict predict what's happening. Um, <clears throat> I think. I think, I mean, the protests can can sort of spark again. They can happen again, you know, in a part of country that you don't um, necessarily predict. Um, but also, we have to watch and see how how things will develop around the next time of the presidential elections in Iran again, and you know, better reformists are going to uh, put a candidate forward that has better economics, but also really does more to challenge uh, the supreme leader. So I think. Um, basically, we have to wait and see how does the official politics respond. Um, but the protests do seem to have died down for now. Do you think, I mean, so you've mentioned kind of only the, that 1979 is the kind of the only comparison, which is on a similar scale. You mentioned the range of different um, kinds of slogans associated with the protest and the fact that they have struck against the struck against the supreme leader Khamenei, that they've targeted um, symbols of authority. Do you think that the legitimacy of the regime has been fundamentally shattered? Particularly, like you say, that the regime can no longer claim to support in the provinces or in more rural and outlying areas. Well, I mean, it's obviously been challenged by some, and you know, the question of legitimacy is an interesting one. I mean, even sort of theoretically, you know, what does it mean when? A place has legitimacy or not. I mean, does Omar Bashir's rule in Sudan has legitimacy with, you know, with what percentage of its population? Um, but let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Islamic Republic and what it is. Because, you know, when you really think about it, sometimes we know the facts, but you wonder about it. When you really think about the Iranian 
system. It really seems to have come out of science fiction, you know, more than more than political <laughs> theory. You know, Ahmad Tadri called it. It's a sort of the platypus of humanity's political evolution. You know, imagine wow. a system. <laughs> imagine a system in which the most powerful figure, constitutionally, I'm not talking about some guy who has his power, you know, based on military or other other forces, which he also does. But just constitutionally, he holds three-fourths of the power. Now, you know, you have many figures like this, but they're usually elected through fraudulent elections. So as a result, you have movements that ask, you know, for their legitimate elections. But here, the supreme leader of Iran that holds three-fourths of the power, I mean, you know, vast majority of the power in its hands constitutionally is not elected, but appointed by an assembly of experts, which is exclusively formed of highly qualified clerics who are sort of jurisprudence. And they can only also elect him, you know, they appoint him, like they can appoint someone who has to be a high jurisprudent. This is basically based on a theory that has almost no precedent in Islam. It has no precedent in Islamic uh, legal theory or very little precedent and it was a big innovation that Ayatollah Khomeini did around the time of 1979 revolution and he made it to the constitution so it's a very a strange system in this in this uh, in this case and whether it has legitimacy or not obviously as I said for a large part of the population it doesn't they find it as absurd um, for some other parts they you know there is a small minority who supports it as something like a divine rule uh, on earth um, you know, it's. I think it's it's really closest to Plato's Republic in some way. You know, they would defend it as some sort of a philosophic king who would have the best of the nation in mind and all that. But I think it goes back to the theoretical question of what is legitimacy, because for a large part of the population, it's not even the question of whether the regime is legitimate or not. They live with it, uh, you know, until uh, something they basically make and do. You know, they sort of continue and they they look for openings, but for a large part of the regime is absurd and not acceptable. And this is something that, you know, many analysts won't tell you because they just, they want to look the other way or, you know, they are afraid of this bringing, they, they don't want to repeat what President Trump says, which none of us do. But, you know, it, you can't escape this fact that this is not a, a normal regime by any means. It is sort of an absurd creation. And I mean, I say absurd from the perspective of a large number of Iranians. So I think this is a fact that uh, we have to take into consideration. Arash, it's, really, um, it's really, sorry. Yeah, Alex, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to ask, I mean, in, in light of, of this sort of constitutional odd, um, <laughs> this constitutional platypus that is the Iranian regime, um, one of the ways in which people kind of seem to get by in, in, in Iran, I mean, is the, the state uses a lot of um, forms of welfareism to, you know, bridge that gap between state and society. As that's my understanding of it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. But with uh, over the past sort of decade, that seems to have been weakening and sort of the tra uh, cash transfers and so on, which a lot of Iranians depend on, um, have been diminishing. And I just wanted to ask you, I mean, what role does that play both in the protests, but also in, in, in assessing the strength of, of the regime? Well, there's there, that definitely has played a role, but there's a couple of points to mention. One is that, so the the Islamic Republic has never really abolished capitalism, and that's not by accident. You know, at some point there was a lot of nationalizations early in the revolution, but Ayatollah Khomeini made it very clear that he was anti anti-communist, and you know there was some respect for 
the rule of um, capital. And, you know, that was very clear from early on. Um, but especially after the death of Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989, you had what historian Erwan Abrahamian has called sort of a Termidorian moment in the Iranian revolution, where under the new supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, and the Rafsanjani, who used to be a president then, you had a very conscious capitalist turn. So you had a capitalist privatizing turn. Now, that doesn't mean that um, the sort of uh, state-owned economy went away totally. Um, it doesn't mean that this sort of uh, fairism com- completely disappeared. But they have been a big, um, how do you say, it? they have been a burden, basically, on the, on the main part of the Iranian economy. And people like Rouhani, who want to reform and modernize and want Iran to be a normal capitalist country, um, or like, you know, the Chinese model, they always have to play with these handouts. They they always have to try to reduce them. And when they do that, um, you know, the crisis break out. But also, the uh, I mean, Iran is a major economy, and the 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 economy of Islamic Republic has been a failure from most perspectives, right? If you're a left finger, it has been a failure because it doesn't, in fact, guarantee some stuff that states like Algeria did at some point, or you know, some other. Uh, left-wing states in the third world, um, but if, if you're if you're a liberal, obviously it's been a failure because it's not it doesn't have proper institutions. There's a lot of corruption linked to military and religious establishments, um, you know. And also, it hasn't it hasn't in fact sort of offered employment and some basic public goods to people. So uh, they, there's a limit to how much the the handouts uh, and welfareism can uh, can can play a role although it does it does also play a role in rural areas there has been a lot of rural development in iran but also expectations have gone up you know so if people if you wanted a fair comparison it's the fact that in the last 40 years there's been a lot of rural development in iran a lot of it is a, as a result of demands that had led to the 79 revolution but people don't just say oh well we have it better than we had you know, a couple of generations before, their expectations have risen up, and mm-hmm. so that's not sort of enough. So, moving, drawing towards the end, I mean, I've got, I mean, two questions, but I just wanted, one question left, in fact, but I just wanted to roll back briefly to your point about the refusal to, or the kind of reluctance to talk about the basic illegitimacy of the Iranian regime in the eyes of ordinary Iranians, and this, like you say, the kind of strangely, um, a platypus kind of strange character of the regime. Do you think that's to do with kind of an orientalizing of Iran, the um, the willingness to kind of attribute credulity well, to I mean, I, Iranians? Um, well, to be honest, uh, you know, I find it a very strange betrayal of principles um, by part of progressives around the world. You know, if... Um, you know, if you ever told someone that the United States tomorrow, you're going to give the um, leadership of the country to the Episcopal Church, I'm sure no one would say, oh, well, that's like respecting, respecting it's not people's traditions. <laughs> exactly. I don't think, you know, anyone would come and say, well, that's we're respecting people's traditions. Let's run South Carolina by giving it to the Southern Baptist Convention or, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure no one would uh, would find that you know, no one would think, oh, that's just local people culture or whatever. But unfortunately, it's, it has, you know, it appears that for some, defending basic things like democracy is not, you know, is not done in the case of countries like Iran. And also, 
the the thing that is disturbing, frankly, is that you know people will say, oh, but maybe that's not what they want. What more should Iranians do to prove that they are fighting for democracy? In 1999, they've came out. In 2009, they came out. And now we saw that they came out. In fact, the demand for freedom, democracy, rule of law, you know, has a very long pedigree in Iran. Um, for more than 100 years, people have fought for it in different, uh, in different formations. So, you know, I have to say that I'm flabbergasted when I see that, um, you know, as I said, this, this, there's a betrayal of basic principles when it comes to Iran, part of the left and part of the global progressives. So how heavy do you think the fate of the Arab Spring weighs on the Iranian protests, given uh, the failed outcomes of popular uprisings in Syria and in Egypt? Is that something that you think would hold people back as to from the possible Absolutely. consequences of overthrowing the regime? Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And unfortunately, I have to say, um, you know, what if it became Syria is a very serious question that many people ask. And, you know, it's legitimate to some degree. People see that, you know... It's not, I mean, there is also, on the other hand, people say, you know, we can become Tunisia. They look at it as, as sort of a positive example of a democratic transition. But people are worried that, you know, this regime won't go away easily. And if we don't have a clear plan and a clear alternative, things can end up like Syria. So I have to say it has had a debilitating effect, uh, definitely. And generally, it sort of has made many people pessimistic about possibility of ch possibilities of change in the Middle East. But the good news is, you know, when we can get a change in Syria or Iran or another place, that would also have a effect that can go around. But uh, that's definitely a consideration. Could you say, I mean, that the Iranian, the history of um, kind of Iranian uh, civil society, mass movements, democratic um, kind of political life, uh, political and popular organizations, that these are more um, densely developed and historically developed, and that perhaps is optimistic compared to somewhere like Syria in terms of what the future holds for Iran? Um, I think, yeah, it is fair to say that uh, there is there is a bit of more development there in Iran. Um, but also they're faced with, the Iranians are faced with a much more complex regime, as I tried to say. And, you know, the the genius thing about the regime is that, you know, so I, I said all these parts about, oh, the Supreme Leader, he's elected in this weird way, and you know, all that. But the the truth is there's also, there's a, a strange flexibility that the Islamic Republic has shown, you know, that it does allow, it, you know, it's not a totalitarian regime. It does allow a certain uh, degree of freedom of speech, a very small degree perhaps, but it, it does matter. And it does allow political contestation. I mean, I said, as I told you, I voted in the elections. I probably will vote again. And, you know, someone can say, oh, why would you elect between this bunch of corrupt mullahs? But because it has real con real consequences for people, you know, it does lead to real change. So the flexibility shown by this regime is one of its genius points, and it makes it it makes it harder to challenge. But and you know, and the fact is, we don't have an opposition. We don't really have an organized opposition that offers a, a clear alternative to the Islamic Republic. What is worth, we have a lot of false oppositions. You know, people in you know in California gathered around, you know, little tin pot tyrant wannabes who talk about <laughs> overthrowing the regime. You know, they, they are the best gift to the Islamic Republic because they make yeah. a joke out of you know, giving a real alternative. What we need is a real alternative. I think Mir Hossein Musavi, the guy who in 2009, he was a presidential candidate, who was, a, who was defeated, he's in house arrest now. You know, we need someone like him 
um, a figure like that to to arise as some sort of a national figure like Nelson Mandela was seen in the case of South Africa so that we can lead a true struggle for democratization and bringing down the dictatorial regime. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point to end it at. Um, so thank you. thank you very much, Arash, for joining us. That's been really, really useful. It was great to talk with you guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. As a counterpart to that, an addendum to to that discussion, we also wanted to briefly chat with and talk about what international and particularly Western responses to the Iranian protests have been. And something that Arash, Arash mentioned, and I think is worth talking about a bit more, is the refusal of the um, broad kind of Western left to align itself behind the popular democratic uprisings in Iran over the years and just the kind of popular frustration with the regime and still this kind of willing that he mentioned the kind of absurd examples that would be the case in the US um, that the idea of you know putting the Baptists in charge or um, in some state in you know some southern state or something like that um, whereas people are willing to accept that kind of ideal as culturally appropriate in somewhere like the Middle East. So I think there's something there which is worth talking a bit about uh, talking about a bit more because it's something I've noticed as well is the tremendous cariness on the part of the left. And I don't think it's reducible just to refusal or an unwillingness to play into um, the hands of Donald Trump or to a fear of the neoconservatives. Um, it's something else, I think, the unwillingness to unequivocally support um, a mass popular uprising, which is so explicitly in many of its you know specific dimensions, has been so explicitly against the authoritarianism, the reactionary religious character of the regime, and that's it's it's strange. And it, like I say, I don't think it's reducible to it's not reducible to an unwillingness to side with the right. It's it's it has its own dynamics. What do you guys think? So I mean, I'm not sure, and these things are always a little bit um, subject to question because. It, they're about one's perception and, and how one sees the sort of the, the discourse going. Personally, I mean, you've seen claims from neocons, both the neocon right as as well as the center, claiming that the left isn't supporting this. Look at them. They're all cultural relativists. Um, they always supported Iran, actually, and then defended the Islamic Republic and so on. I mean, I haven't seen that much evidence of this. I mean, there's some sort of Western Stalinists claiming that the protests are pro-imperialist, that they've been infiltrated um, either by the Iranian diaspora allied to foreign interests or have been created by the CIA or other intelligence services. That's been pretty marginal. I mean, for me, I think it's been a little bit more of a reluctance to put your cards on the table from the Western left more than it has been any sort of culturally relativist idea that um, the Islamic Republic is sort of a legitimate regime in Iran um, or, or that it's an anti-imperialist regime and therefore should be defended. I haven't seen that much of that. As I say, I think it's been a little bit more of reluctance to really take a stand on it more than anything else. Yeah, I think I, would, I think there's certainly has been a bit of caginess and and um, for example, the the Labour Party seeming to be pretty quiet about about the whole thing. And it might be because it's just not clear, <clears throat> at least to them, how it's gonna how it's gonna pan out. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of another Arab Spring or I don't know <clears throat> another Syria. So I think it's it's just probably bespeaks a lack of a lack of principles more than more than, I don't know, a relativism. 
But surely, I mean, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, the lack of principles, the lack of willingness to stand by the idea of certain basic universal political categories and ideals is the very definition of relativism. So the lack of principles speaks to that. I mean, so, I mean, I agree that, you know, it's not explicit. Um, it's more silence than, you know, I mean, there's very few people who've kind of voiced overt support for the regime, but it's the silence that speaks volumes. And the caginess surely speaks to at least... Um, a tacit refusal to a tacit refusal to defend certain principles, and at least um, a tacit extension of, if not legitimacy, then at least a willingness to, um, at least a willingness to allow the regime to try and adapt and pursue its interests in the face of the protests. Well, I mean, let, let's take a counterpoint, because when there was a crackdown on, on Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, um, and the, the, the kind of full consummation of the counter-revolution with Sisi taking power, there, I think there was a really shameful um, lack of criticism of that from a lot of the Western left, and a kind of acceptance of the um, the sort of the yeah. kind of military regime's counter-revolution um, and the lack of defense of the Muslim Brotherhood as effectively the legitimate, uh, you know, democratically elected um, government yeah. in Egypt. And that was really shameful. I don't think you're getting that here. I mean, th- so let me just take a, a little example. So one commentator, John Rentoul, um, and the emphasis really should be on the last syllable there, he's a, he's a, <laughs> he's a British commentator for, for The Independent. Um, complained, I don't yeah, uh, complained that <laughs> rent a tool. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, he complained that Labour's foreign minister, uh, Emily Thornbury, hadn't supported the protests and that and accused her of moral cowardice and whatever. The usual sort of neocon line um, against the left of moral equivalence and so on. Um, but Thornbury said, she defended herself saying that, you know, sometimes, talking about the protesters, sometimes they're calling to reinstate the monarchy, sometimes they're calling out against Khamenei, sometimes they're calling for Khamenei, sometimes they're calling for the price of eggs. So, I mean, she at least is is um, pointing to a sort of inquietness amongst the protests and a reluctance to really take a stand on it because... No, but surely she's really... hiding behind the inquiet, you know, the inquiet character of the protest. She's hiding behind. Okay, I brain, mean, the maybe. fact that, you know, the fact that um, it's kind of politically inarticulate and that there's a range of protests... Um, shouldn't take away from the fact that it's a tremendous popular explosion, um, as Rash said, which is unprecedented since 1979, the breadth and the range across the country. And, you know, I mean, why would it be a surprise that it's, and it's also, I mean, it's kind of bursts through the official um, mechanisms and institutions for expressing popular dissatisfaction in the regime. So why would it be a surprise that it would take the kind of range of forms, even say, you know, ridiculous forms like um, pro-Shah, pro-Shah slogans? So it seems to me like, I mean, that is also in bad faith um, to say, oh, well, you know, like it's a range of different kind of claims are being made. That's just her hiding, um, her hiding behind the politically kind of inchoate character of what is very clearly kind of a genuine mass popular uprising. Look, I mean, I, I, I mean, I agree with you as to the nature of the uprising. And I think as, as Arash rightly pointed out that there's a, a this, the, the protest movement is kind of a going beyond of reformism, which, you know, it's, it's very much going beyond the, the limitations of the 2009 sort of green movement. Um, uh, I just think that perhaps their analysis is wrong, and maybe it's a maybe it's an element of cowardice, of an unwillingness to to um, stand up in defense of the protesters, um, but or maybe their their analysis is wrong. You know, I mean, I think after the kind of after the color revolutions, I think Ukraine most notably, um, and the events that led to neo fascists in government there, and the Arab Spring, um, 
and what's happened in Syria, there's less of a of a sort of knee-jerk automatic response from a lot of Western commentators as well as liberals on the left to go, yay, protest, people are out on the streets, they're opposing the regime, therefore we should support them, um, and it's all light and colors and fluffy, nice stuff about freedom and democracy, and we don't need to analyze it, let's just support them because they're on Twitter, they're just like us. I mean, that we... Um, can accept i think was very vacuous and problematic in in its lack of any kind of concrete analysis about what's going on there and a hell of a lot of projection onto protesters maybe today what we're seeing with the ran is the mirror image of that or the exact opposite of that where it's a kind of like we've been burnt too many times on this we're not even taking any stand on this which is which is wrong as well but um maybe i think that's the context in which we have to understand it it's an interesting question uh, so and i it's a genuinely open one, I think. I would still say, you know, in in as much as there would be, you know, there should be any kind of realistic political attempt to understand what's going on should realistically entertain the possibility of um, catastrophe as something like what happened in Syria. But by the same token, um, you don't also want to, in so doing, you don't also want to write a blank check for the regime. Because obviously, ultimately, the end justification, the ultimate justification for any authoritarian regime is to maintain order and to maintain security and to avoid civil war. And so to, you know, if that is front and center rather than the kind of aspiration for um, a more humane and free life um, and a more greater kind of democratic, um, greater democratic rights, if that isn't front and center, then and you're more concerned with the possible kind of uh, disaster, disastrous outcomes and catastrophe, then you have, in effect, written a blank check for the regime. Yeah. And so just to be clear, then, are we are we saying then that the anti-imperialist, there is no anti, you know, there is no s- political sympathy for the regime on the basis of its supposed anti-imperialist credentials? I think that's I think that's marginal at best. Marginal. OK. Mm. What do you think, George? Yeah, I agree with Alex. <laughs> so I mean, I, so I, my my take would be, if it's anything, it's it's cowardice rather than um, a misplaced anti-imperialism or cultural relativism. Yeah. I, I think it's coward cowardice in not necessarily morally, but in in the analysis that people just maybe don't really know enough what's what's going on. It's so never stopped them before, has it? Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe they've learned some lessons about about proclaiming which side is right without knowing anything about it <laughs> the west but no I, I don't that was a joke i that's mean well look not. at the end of the day given that events will not be you know outcomes will not be determined in mediatized discourse in the west i would no I'm, that's exactly where on podcast <laughs> will be yeah. i was gonna say yeah alex you gotta yeah. take responsibility for what you say um no one should take responsibility for what one says absolutely but i think as it's not going to be resolved there, I think, you know, if, if I'm given the choice, I'd rather a reluctance amongst um, both the commentariat as well as the left in terms of making pronouncements about what's going on in a country before, you know, there's enough analysis done about it than a gleeful jumping on to any cause uh, and and somehow that that enthusiasm taking the place of where, you know, taking the place where analysis should be. All right, that's it for this week. We'll no doubt be back to talk about Iran and hopefully have a rash back on to explore how the movement for democracy is developing there. 
But we're back next week, Wednesday the 17th of January, to talk about South Africa. What does Ramaphosa's election to ANC president mean for the country? How real is Gupta state capture there? And much more. We'll be joined by Africa as a Country editor Sean Jacobs for that. Tell your friends. Catch you then. Bye-bye.